One of my favorite books over the last several years by far is a book called Where the Light Fell. I think I've talked about this before, written by a guy named Philip Yancey. Um, rarely do I weep through a book. I was doing an audiobook, and I wept through this book. Um, I wept everywhere. Um, in the gym. I'm listening in the gym, and I'm crying. Uh, I'm listening in my car. I'm crying. It's about a it's, it's, it's his memoir, Philip's memoir, about growing up essentially in kind of a, a fundamentalist uh, church in the South uh, in the 60s, 50s and 60s and 70s. And um, man, so many things that resonated with me in this book. But essentially, his father died when he was uh, a child. And his mother essentially create, uh, spoke a vow over him that he and his brother, his older brother, were going to go be missionaries. And that this essentially, they were going to be raised up to do what their father could never do, which is be missionaries. So he lives with this sort of like low-grade shame hanging over him through the most entirety of his life. And, and he lives in this environment that's really... Uh, all about like what you can't do. It's, it's a very kind of negative prohibition type environment. Can't do this, you can't drink, can't smoke, can't dance, can't do anything fun. Uh, and then there's all kinds of just like racial tensions and things that are happening obviously in this environment. And, and he, it kind of begins to dawn on him what's, what he's grown up, which, what's normal to him uh, isn't actually normal to the, the global church when he goes off to college. He goes to a very conservative uh, college, uh, some of you may be familiar with called Bob Jones in the South. And uh, at Bob Jones, he encounters uh, uh, an even heightened version of this, uh, but in a contained environment in a, in a, on a college campus. And he writes, uh, in reflecting on his experience in college, he writes on this passage in Matthew chapter 23, and he said this passage actually uh, describes a lot of what he experienced in, in, on his college campus. He said, the Pharisees accused Jesus, tithe their kitchen spices while neglecting weightier issues like justice. At other colleges, Students were protesting the Vietnam War, joining the Freedom Riders in Alabama and Mississippi. At our school, we were debating such issues as the universal flood, hyper-Calvinism, and infant baptism. Yes, we study the Bible, but selectively. In the words of Marilyn Robinson, who's an author, people who insist that the sacredness of Scripture depends on belief in creation in a literal six days seem never to insist on a literal reading of to him who asks, give, or sell what you have and give the money to the poor. So he's in a time in history when the world is in crisis, right? Think about the 60s. The sexual revolution is happening. The Vietnam War is happening. Uh, there's humanitarian crisis everywhere you look. I mean, the world is, is coming apart, ripping apart. The fabric of the world is ripping apart at the seams. And he says, we are focused on prophecy charts, and the end times, and Calvinism, the extent of the atonement or God's providence and sovereignty, if you're familiar with that whole debate in the church. And outside the walls of this campus, the world is on fire. And he, he, he describes this incident that kind of encapsulated this for him when a friend of his who worked in the dean of the women's office uh, one, one time as Valentine's Day was approaching, um, said she witnessed this bizarre scene of her boss in white gloves, censoring one by one. Do you know those tiny, like, heart-shaped candies that you give out at Valentine's Day that have, like, little words in, or phrases inscribed on them, like kids do this? Okay. So they're censoring these. They're literally taking these out of people's bags as they come into the dorms, and they're looking at them and, and, and noticing what they're saying, these decorations for a party that they're going to do. Um, you're mine, friends forever, be my Valentine, past muster, cutie pie, 
hot lips and love you went right into the trash can. So this is, what's, this is what they're concerned about, these minutiae of the phrases on their candy, while black and white couples cannot get married on campus. Now, this is, to be fair, like what's happening culturally in a lot of places, not just there. But I can't think of a better picture as what he's describing there um, of what Jesus is addressing here in Matthew chapter 23. Jesus begins his ministry in the book of Matthew. We'll get back to this in a few weeks uh, in the Sermon on the Mount with nine Beatitudes, a picture of who is blessed in the kingdom of God. And he ends his ministry, he bookends his teaching here in Matthew 23 with seven woes. So nine Beatitudes and seven woes. And a woe is essentially a prophetic warning and a a sort of mourning mixed together. Like Jesus here is critiquing like a prophet, but he's brokenhearted. He's not like an angry activist who just comes with vitriol to tear down and to throw flaming arrows at people. His heart is broken. That's what a woe is. The Pharisees, again, we, we give them a lot of uh, uh, we give them a hard time in the church. Can we just acknowledge we're really hard on the Pharisees, but do, do you remember that they were a renewal movement? They were about holiness. They, they were seeking to preserve Jewish identity in the face of Greco-Roman propaganda and compromise. They would have been the ones most closely aligned with Jesus in their theology. So this is a sort of intramural debate here with Jesus and the people who shared his theological convictions about what it meant to pursue the kingdom of God. The Pharisees, the ones who thought they were blessed, the ones who thought they were at the front of the line to inherit God's kingdom, Jesus says, are actually the furthest away. Jesus gives a twofold critique in this woe. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You pay a tenth of mint, dill, and cumin. So let's just stop there. They're very scrupulous about their tithing. In the Old Testament, there are all kinds of laws around tithing, right? Tithing's a big deal. It's a, it's a reminder. The word literally means a tenth. A tenth of what you own is to go back to God as a reminder that you don't own your stuff. God is the owner. You are the manager. You are the steward. And so scholars tell us that it was more than a tenth. It actually was probably about 25% of their income went to the temple as a reminder that everything that they had belonged to God. And so there was a debate, though, because for, a t- for an agricultural society, uh, tithing was not done with money and currency. It was done with crops. And uh, there was a big debate among the rabbis as to where the herbs fall into. We're still debating. What do we do with the herbs? What do we do with the herbs? You know, um, like, are they good or bad? You know, do they count as produce or not? They had a little bit of a different argument than we have about herbs now. Okay. But there was all kinds of debate about, did they fall into the crops? Did they not? And, and the, the, the Pharisees were of the belief that you were to take any Uh, any mint or dill or cumin or any of these spices from your garden, and you were to tediously separate out a a percentage of them. And again, this is not for them about legalism or didn't start that way. It was about faithfulness. And we can learn something from the Pharisees about attention to detail in our holiness. But it was about faithfulness. And over time, it became warped. They got so focused, Jesus said, on Weighing out, like imagine a scale in their kitchen and they're weighing out the little spices and the little specks 
of mint and dill and cumin and whatever other spices they had, trying to be so faithful. But Jesus says, you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These things should have been done without neglecting the others. That the word neglect there is to drop or let go of, or you've essentially moved it out to the margins or the periphery. You're painstakingly attentive in the minor practices of your spirituality while you've pushed the majors out to the periphery. Now, notice Jesus does not say that personal holiness and personal spirituality don't matter. He says you should do both. You should tithe, and you should pay attention to the weightier matters of justice and mercy and faithfulness. Tithing is good, but he says it's not central. So what Jesus is saying here is that there is a hierarchy of what is good and what matters most to the heart of God in terms of kingdom values. Not all are the same. And then he goes on to kind of describe this mentality by talking about, he says, um, blind guides. You strain out a gnat, but you gulp down a camel. What he's referring there to there in the book of Leviticus, the gnat would have been the smallest unclean insect, and the camel would have been the largest unclean beast. So he's basically using uh, you know, metaphor here. He's using the Old Testament law to say from small to greatest, this is the spectrum here. And what, what they would do in those times is they were so concerned about not being contaminated by any unclean animal, even an insect, even the tiniest little insect that you can't see, that when they would pour their wine, their wine was kept in a mason jar, right? And when they would host a party or they would sit down at night before they binge networked uh, Netflix or whatever, um, and they wanted a glass of wine, they had like, imagine a little coffee pour over filter, like this elaborate filtration system, like a towel, like a really thin towel. And they would pour the wine through there to filter out any potential gnats so that what they would have didn't unintentionally make them unclean because to become richly unclean meant that you were excluded from temple worship, meant that you had a ton of shame because it was an honor-shame culture, and you had to go through this elaborate ritual cleansing process that took days. And so Jesus is saying, you're focused on the wrong thing. You're avoiding the smaller contamination, and you've swallowed a much larger sin. You've swallowed a camel because you're neglecting justice and mercy and faithfulness. So he says, you have distorted emphasis, a distorted practice, and then you have a distorted vision. You're supposed to be the guides. You're supposed to be the ones interpreting the law, teaching people what's central to the heart of God. But you're deceived. You're blind. You have massive blind spots. That's the nature of self-deception is you can't see it. But Jesus is saying, I don't care how passionate you are about these smaller issues. I don't care how faithful you're being in the minutia. The right things done with the wrong proportion or the wrong emphasis are blinding you to God's bigger priorities and thus our sin. You're not seeing properly. You don't see God properly. You don't see yourself properly. And most importantly, you don't see your neighbor properly. And there are damaging and destructive consequences because this isn't just about you because they were the ones that were setting up the institution of how religion worked in that day. They were the ones who were the gatekeepers to who could come in to the temple, who could come into community, how they worshiped. It was all run by the religious leaders. So they were then creating systems that were unintentionally unjust. 
and leading people astray. And Jesus goes on to say in Matthew 23 that when you convert people and you disciple them with your distorted priorities and emphases, you make them twice the children of hell. So all of this is said, of course, in love. Again, Jesus as a prophet is inviting them to a different way of life. He's not just zinging them or indicting them. He's inviting them into a deeper, more beautiful way of life. Jesus is calling them to reprioritize what matters. Don't stop tithing. Don't stop being scrupulous about your holiness, but reprioritize where you're spending your time, your energy, your money, your imagination. Don't neglect the more important matters, justice, mercy, faithfulness. Now, what Jesus is saying, not what Brandon is saying, what Jesus is saying here in this passage is that justice should be a major concern for disciples of Jesus, just as it was a major concern for God. Justice should be a major concern for disciples, just as it was a major concern for God. And in saying that, that shouldn't be controversial, especially in the church. But why is it controversial? Why is Twitter on fire all of the time over issues of justice? Why are we having to continue to try to convince people that this is the heart of God? Why do we have, even now, as I mention a word like that, why do you, some of you maybe have an internal reaction where you feel anxious or you're like, I knew this is a woke progressive church and here it goes on this diatribe. I know what you're thinking. I've had this conversation many times. We've abandoned the gospel. I know. But it's just, I'm just reading you the Bible. (laughs) Jesus is not saying anything new. He's standing in the tradition of the Old Testament law and prophets. He's essentially saying, Matthew 22, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, right? Be faithful to God and love your neighbors yourself. Do justice and love mercy. Is he not basically quoting here Micah 6, 8? What does God require of you, man, woman? Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. Can we say that together? Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. That's all Jesus is saying. Justice, will you join God in putting to right what is broken in the world? Mercy, will you do that with a heart that's humble and kind and merciful, not angry and vengeful or apathetic? Faithfulness. Will you be committed to Jesus? Will you be radically loyal to him? Will you disciple yourself to him? Will you do his will from your heart? That's what he's saying. So what I want to do just for a few minutes, because it's been a while, I was counting up this week. I've given eight sermons, I think, on justice in the last couple years, but I have not talked about this uh, since a lot of you have come on this side of COVID. So I want to just briefly revisit, and all this is on our website. We have a whole page dedicated to justice and reconciliation. We define all of our terms. You can go there. If you want the footnotes, it's all there. But I just want to take a minute, a few minutes, to journey with Jesus and to give you what would have been behind what Jesus is saying here. And I want to just show you, just very simply, the biblical priority and centrality of justice. What Jesus says here, don't neglect the most important matters. 
Justice, mercy, faithfulness. We're going to just take justice. We could talk about mercy. We could talk about faithfulness. We're just going to talk about justice. Because this is, this is a massive theme in the Bible. You could call it a meta theme in the Bible. It's one loud message. And I want to just narrate it through in the story, five scenes. We see it, and there, I could do this a lot of different ways, but five scenes. It's one melody. If you want to think about it like a melody, a beautiful tune that goes throughout the scripture and the narrative of the Bible. It's played by dozens of musicians, different genres. Sometimes it's in blues. Sometimes it's in jazz. Sometimes it's in funk. Sometimes it's in pop. Uh, Miles can help me with other genres. I'm out. But different cultures, different instruments. But it's the same song. Justice is central to the heart of God. It's who he is. It's what he's doing in the world. And it's what he wants his people to be about. So let's do this quickly. At the last service, we went long, so we're going to do it quickly. We start, I give five scenes. The Exodus, and I want to give you the picture, and then I just want to give you some principles in each one of these, and then I want to come back and say, what does this mean for us in our moment? Why is this so hard for us in this moment? Why is this not our instinct? There are reasons why this is hard for us, and then just an invitation to, towards maybe a next step for us as we think about what God's calling us to do, okay? You guys with me? We do that? Okay. Five scenes. Exodus. Exodus 3. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their oppressors. Thousands of years before Marx used the word oppressor, it's in the Bible. Okay? So this is not culture war. It's right here. I know about their sufferings. I've come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians to bring them from that land, a land of oppression, a land of anxiety, a land of bondage, to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Two things I want you just to see in in the Exodus time period that, that show us something about justice. First, God's character is one of justice. Justice flows from the character of God. We must start with God if we're going to talk about justice. We must not start horizontally, but vertically. God's character is one of justice because he loves his image bearers. He hears their cries of injustice, and he draws near with his power and presence. He is proximate, you could say, to their suffering. Why is injustice such a big deal to God? God is not into the culture wars. He doesn't care about right or left. What God cares about is justice because injustice is an assault on his character, It is a defacing of the dignity and the rights of his image bearers. And so he is exquisitely attuned to their cries for help. Psalm 89, talking about God's character. This is who he is, inside and out. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Faithful love and truth go before you. Psalm 33, he loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of God's unfailing love. That is a sample of dozens of texts that I could give you this morning that tell you that God's heart, his character, it is in his nature to be just and righteous. Nicholas Wolterstorff, who's done a lot of good writing in the area of justice, says God's love of justice is grounded in his longing for shalom and in God's sorrow over its absence. We talked about that in week one of the series. Two Hebrew words that translate justice and righteousness throughout the Exodus narrative, throughout the Psalms, mitzpah and tzedakah. 
Mitzpah is what people usually think of when they think of justice, punishing wrongdoers, and caring for the victims of injustice. This is what we call retributive justice. And this is important, right? We, we must intervene when people are being harmed. And we must care for the brokenness on the other side of that. But that's only part of the story. Punishment intervenes to stop harm and care for the broken, but it can't restore wholeness. The broader vision of righteousness and justice is about more than police surveillance, arrest warrants, investigations, and criminal justice systems, although we need those things and we need those things to be done well. And I'm thankful for those who do that. But it's also about restoration. It's about healing. It's about shalom. And that's Sedeca, right? Sedeca is restorative justice. It is putting things to right. It is restoring wholeness in relationships and communities and systems and institutions. So these two words are translated. They, they're kind of interchangeable. Sometimes they're translated righteous. Sometimes they're translated just. One scholar says the righteous in the Old Testament are, are not just those who are right with God. He says they're those who are right with God and therefore committed to putting right all other relationships. So we tend to separate out personal, private, internal righteousness from public acts of justice. But in God, they're interwoven. They can't be separated. God is righteous. He is just internally, so he acts righteous and just in his dealings with people. When you put these words together, most scholars, Orthodox scholars, would argue that when you put these two words together, the, the right word is social justice. It's justice that's done socially in our relationships with others. So God moves in, he moves close. What I want you to hear is God hears the cries and he moves close, eventually establishing his presence in the tabernacle, a visible, tangible manifestation of his righteous, just presence and power among his people. Also notice, and we don't have time to get into this, but also notice that God chooses whom? He doesn't choose Pharaoh. He doesn't choose the systems of power in the world. He chooses the poor. He chooses the vulnerable. He chooses the marginalized over the strong to fulfill his purposes in the world. It doesn't mean that he loves them more. To have a preferential option for the poor, as it's classically been called, doesn't mean that he loves them more or that he doesn't ever choose the wealthy and powerful, right? You can look at that story from Abraham to a man like Paul who had a ton of privilege and education and all that. That's not what it means. It means that God's heart breaks and he has a tendency, a proclivity, an attraction to identify with the hurting, the poor, the marginalized, and to raise them up because... More often than not, they are on the, uh, underneath the boot of injustice. They are the powerless ones. They are the vulnerable ones. They don't have the social capital to speak up for themselves and to act for themselves. And so God says, I delight in raising them up. That's the exodus. Then we move to the law, which again, I would love to do a whole sermon here. Uh, because not only does God liberate Israel from Egypt, I got to tie my shoes here. Not only does God liberate Israel from Egypt, but he also has to liberate Egypt and get Egypt out of Israel. Not only does he have to get Israel out of Egypt, he has to get Egypt out of Israel. God says, I want you to be my children. I want you to live a certain way. This isn't about just delivering you from slavery. I want you to be a community of justice. I want you to learn to imitate my justice. And as I have Sadeka, I want you to become the Sadiq, the righteous ones, the just ones. And not only just for your sake, 
But in doing so, you will bear witness to the nations and they'll actually be attracted to the justice that you're showing them. Deuteronomy chapter four. Carefully follow these statutes, the law, the Torah, the instructions about justice. For this will show your wisdom in the eyes of the peoples, in the eyes of the nations, and they will say, this great nation is indeed a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God near to it? A group of former slaves, this ragtag group of nobodies has a God who's near to them. In that time, in ancient Mesopotamia, the gods moved towards the powerful. This God moves towards the weak. And what great nation has righteous statutes and ordinances? We've never seen justice like this because this doesn't work according to sociological principles. And so the rest of the law, Deuteronomy and Leviticus, I know we hate those. I'm sure you were meditating on all of the ins and outs of Leviticus in your quiet time this morning or whatever. They're tedious. I get it. But all these laws, there's hundreds of them, and they're spelling out clearly what it means to become a community of justice. Torah is just simply God's justice embodied and encoded in laws and policies and feasts and rituals and all kinds of spiritual disciplines and spiritual practices. Notice that spiritual formation is here from the beginning. We, we engage in spiritual formation, Sabbath, justice practices, food laws, like all these spiritual disciplines, prayer, fasting that are there in Deuteronomy. These are not given for the sake of self-care. Spiritual formation is not about introverted wellness spirituality. Right? Like, I Sabbath because I just want to take care of myself. No. Sabbath is about remembering. It's about remembering your past history, he says to them, as an oppressed people. Remember that you too were oppressed. Renew your trust and your love for me. Live a different story. That's what Sabbath was about in Deuteronomy chapter 5 and Exodus 13. And it's tedious because... It's applying God's righteousness, but it's comprehensive. It's applying God's righteousness to every aspect of life, to relationships, to economics, to politics, to agriculture, to worship, to education, to medical. Why does he get so specific? Like, wear these clothes. Don't go here, go here. Like, why is it so specific? Do any of you have children? Do you know why you have to be specific with your children? Because we have a knack for evading responsibility when we're not specific. You didn't tell me exactly to do it like this. That's the human condition. So God's like, I'm going to tell you what justice looks like so you don't have to guess. So that's why he talks about and gives very specific instructions, ranging from judges not taking bribes, lending without interest, handling lawsuits, theft and repair of theft, murder versus killing. And what do you do when somebody kills somebody accidentally? Forgiveness and repentance and repair, because that's a part of justice, as David talked about last week. Food laws, medical issues, sexual ethics, taxes, how to approach the temple, the release of debts. Every seven years and in Jubilee, all the land returned back. There was an economic reset every 50 years. And do you know what? Most scholars argue that the reason that Israel actually went into exile is because they never observed Jubilee. We don't have one example of them ever actually doing it. And that's at least part of the explanation why God sends them into exile. Next, we have the prophets. Israel doesn't live up to its calling to become a community of justice. Prophets, like the God that they serve, hear the cries of injustice, and they call out both pagan nations and religious leaders, but most of their, most of their critique is aimed at the religious leaders. 
And, and what I just want to say about this is what you'll notice, a couple of things. Most of the prophetic critiques are not for blatant acts of oppression. They are for passive neglect, a failure to love their neighbor. To love them privately as well as publicly. To love them internally and externally. It's the same critique he's given the Pharisees, you've neglected justice. Just one example, Amos chapter 2. I will not relent from punishing Israel for three crimes, even four, because they sell a righteous person for silver and a needy person for a pair of sandals. They trample the heads of the poor on the dust of the ground and obstruct the path of the needy. A man and his father have sexual relations with the same girl, profaning my holy name. They stretch out beside every altar on garments taken as collateral. And in the house of their God, they drink wine obtained through fines. Amos is a prophet in a time of emerging prosperity in Israel. There's a growing gap between the rich and the poor, and this became reflected in their social norms, their policies, their habits, their systems, their institutions. And so it wasn't so much that they were actively committing violence against the poor, the wealthier elite. It's just that they just kind of organized their life in a way that didn't put them in close proximity to them. And their, their, their devotion at the temple was about a sort of private spirituality. I gather to pray and to feast and, and do all these things while neglecting the poor. They live in this neighborhood, and the poor lived in this neighborhood. It's a privatized spirituality that separated personal piety from social righteousness, and the prophets say, no, no. Amos 5, message translation, Eugene Peterson, I can't stand your religious meetings. I'm fed up with your conferences and conventions. I want nothing to do with your religion projects, your pretentious slogans and goals. I'm sick of your fundraising schemes, your public relations and image making. I've had all I can take of your noisy ego music. Like when you gather together for a worship concert, I hate it. I don't want any more hype. I don't want any more concerts. I don't want any more prayer and fasting retreats. I don't want any more Bible studies. That's what he's saying. Stop it. When was the last time you sang to me? Do you know what I want? I want justice, oceans of it. I want fairness, rivers of it. That's what I want. That's all that I want. In another translation, let justice roll down like the waters. That's what I want. Then you come and worship me. Then you come and sing to me because your internal righteousness will match your external justice. And I could go on and on in Isaiah and, and other places, but I think you get the point. The prophets would say, you measure the health of a church, you measure the health of a society by how the most vulnerable are treated. The presence or absence of justice in a society, according to Amos, according to Jeremiah, according to Micah, according to the prophets Isaiah and others, is how are the quartet of the vulnerable flourishing or not? The poor, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant refugee. Zechariah 7.10, do not oppress the widow or the fatherless. The resident alien or immigrant or refugee or the poor, do not plot evil in your hearts against all of this kind of comes to a climax in Isaiah chapter, the, the back half of Isaiah, as the people are, are longing for this redemption, they're longing for shalom, they're longing for God to make this stuff right, and God promises them a Messiah, promises one who will be the Sadiq, the righteous one, the just one, who would bring about Sedekah, 
Righteousness, justice, wholeness, shalom, who would bring about homes for the homeless, clothes for the naked, care for the refugee, parents for the orphan. Isaiah 61, I'll just throw it on the screen. I'm not going to read it, but just notice at the end, because God loves justice, he promises one who will come and restore justice in all dimensions, who will restore broken systems, broken places, broken institutions, repairs of the breaches, restorers of the cities. It's not just personal piety and personal evangelism, although that is there. It's also restoring systems and institutions that are broken. And all of this culminates again, obviously, in Jesus being the fulfillment of this. Jesus comes. And Jesus doesn't muffle the sound of this beautiful melody of justice that's heard throughout the Old Testament. He turns up the volume, <laughs> right? I mean, you want to know what God thinks about justice? You want to think about, want to know what God thinks about preferential option for the poor? When Jesus writes himself into the story, he doesn't write himself in being born in the center of power in Rome or Jerusalem. He's born in Nazareth. He's born in Galilee, a backwoods town. He writes himself down in, not with an elite family with a trickle-down policy, because that never works. He moves right in with the poor. He enters in by moving in. He moves literally, I mean, this sounds crass, but he moves into the womb of a poor, powerless, homeless, refugee teenager from a backwoods town away from the urban centers of Roman power. His mother Mary prophesies over him, and she says, filled with the Holy Spirit, he will fill the poor but turn away the rich and powerful. He will overturn the kingdoms of this world. 2 Corinthians 8, Paul, echoing these words of Mary, says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, for your sake he became poor so that by his poverty you might become rich. And lo and behold, the first sermon that Jesus preaches in Luke chapter 4 is what? He just quotes Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach the good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to set the captives free. Go and tell John later, he says, that the Messiah is here because the poor are being cared for and being invited into the kingdom of God. Blessed, Jesus says, are those who hunger and thirst for, and you can translate it either way, righteousness, or how would it change if you changed that beatitude to blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice? He taught radical stuff like that, and he lived it. He gave preference to racial and ethnic outsiders, to the lepers, to feeding the poor, to opening the eyes of the blind, often on Sabbath. You know why he did it on Sabbath? Because he was challenging those religious structures and saying, I can't be bound by your systems and customs that are keeping people excluded from the community of God. He taught crazy things in Matthew 25, like how you treat the poor is how you treat me. How you see me is how you see the poor and vice versa. Not that our justification comes from serving the poor, but it's evidence that our hearts have been justified, that we've been saved, that we've been regenerated. How we treat the poor shows our justification or not. And there's a big surprise waiting for them in Matthew 25. Those who think they're righteous but neglected justice their entire lives get there and they're surprised that they're sent away. And the ones who did it and served are surprised that they're welcomed in. So you see how we get to this place in Matthew 23 where there's conflict with the Pharisees because Jesus lives a life of justice and righteousness where Israel failed, where the Pharisees failed. Jesus is calling them back to righteousness. 
His primary conflict with the Pharisees was not over his ministry of justice per se to the poor and marginalized, but the fact that he included them at his table was what got him killed. The fact that he said, these are my people, they're welcome at my table, the kingdom of God is in such as these. They begin to recognize the indictment and the imitation, but mostly the indictment, and they begin to plot Jesus' death. And of course, the most spectacular display of justice is Jesus going to the cross. On the cross, the paradox of justice, how do we solve the justice issue, is solved in Jesus. The Gordian knot is untied, right? The just one, the righteous one, the one who had no sin, had never harmed anyone, the just and righteous one, takes injustice into his body. He dies the death that we should have died. He he lived the life that we couldn't live. And he takes injustice into his body by becoming a victim of injustice, except voluntarily, he lays his life down. He gives himself, he sacrifices himself, and so shows us a pathway through the Gordian knot by showing us redemptive, self-giving, self-sacrificing love. And the last scene then that becomes a force, a creative force for righteousness in the world after Jesus rises from the dead and he pours out his spirit on his people, he sends them out in his name. They disciple themselves to him. They become like him. They begin to do what he did in the world. And of course, in the book of Acts, we see them living out this vision of radical justice, radical reconciliation, radical mercy, radical imitation of the righteous and just character of Jesus. And that was what was attractive. The way that they treated women, the way that they treated slaves, the way that they treated children was the force that overturned the Roman Empire. And not to say by any stretch of the imagination that the church is not guilty of all kinds of acts of injustice and violence, but it is to say that's not the melody. It is a departure from the melody of justice. And in every time that happens through church history, whether we're talking about, um, yeah, anytime that happens, they're called back to the work of justice. And we see that throughout church history, a beautiful people feeding the poor, starting poor houses, literally, they call them poor houses, starting hospitals, showing radical hospitality, treating women in ways that were radical and got many of them killed. They were anti-slavery. I mean, all of these things that we forget when we deconstruct the church, we forget that there's also a beautiful legacy here, and we need to acknowledge both. From Tertullian to Augustine to Aquinas to Calvin to Wesley to the Celtics to the black church in our day, There has been a legacy of justice preserved through the ages. These radical revolutionaries who took Jesus at his word and decided to center their lives on the work of justice. Now, I want to begin to wrap up by just asking the question, do we hear this invitation to us? Could it be possible that we have more in common with the Pharisees than we think, right? Like, I never want to read myself into the story. We, we always like to read ourselves into the story as Jesus. <laughs> what, if, what if we're the Pharisees? Could it be possible that we're guilty of the same issues? I mean, do we not live in a cultural moment where the church, where Christians are obsessed with spiritual minutia? We have more apps 
Christian apps, more Bible studies, more access to resources, more Christian conferences called something like Ichthus or something. I mean, we have all of the minutia, all the spirituality. We have a whole media empire called Christian consumerism, right? And we can get so focused on those minutias to the neglect of the weightier matters of justice and mercy and faithfulness. And what if Jesus is right? What, what, if, what, if, what if we are neglecting that? What if the greatest threat to our spiritual health and maturity isn't some cultural boogeyman or a political ideology or being seduced into active oppression, but just simply not doing anything? The passive neglect of justice that's the result of just organizing in our lives in a way that is not proximate to the poor and the hurting and the oppressed. What if that's the greatest threat to our spirituality? What if that's the greatest threat? And I say that with eyes wide open and having spent a week repenting in my own life. This is a very hard message to prepare. What if I am choosing my own comfort and prioritizing that over proximity to the poor? I do. I am. What about you? How do we hold these things that matter to Jesus, justice and mercy and faithfulness and the right tension? Right, because, we, we, again, we live in a moment where different church traditions, depending on where you grew up, and different generations emphasize, if you think of this like uh, Pastor John Tyson had this great Venn diagram, as he's known to do, of if you imagine like a Venn diagram with mercy and justice and faithfulness, all right there. Um, diff- you can actually like map out like how evangelicalism kind of emphasizes the different aspects of this in the different traditions. So the last century in reaction to the social gospel, I think, in a lot of ways, which basically taught that we're just kind of justified by doing good deeds, but we're, we're, it was kind of disconnected from Jesus. So about 100 years ago, there was a split, and there was kind of the fundamentalists on one side that really focused on faithfulness and holiness, and then there's kind of the, the mainline traditions on the other end. If you grew up like Methodist or you know, Lutheran or whatever, and there was more of a focus on justice over here, but oftentimes could lose Jesus, lose the gospel. And for those who grew up in more of an evangelical tradition, what we've inherited oftentimes is a gospel in a church that lacks a vision for justice. Like, how many sermons did you hear growing up on justice? I went to the largest evangelical seminary in the world, and I read this many books on justice, and I read this many books by people of color, and I suspect that the reason is because those two are related. <laughs> now, I, don't, I appreciate what was given to me, but I'm just saying massive blind spots. And we can do that, right? Like some, some traditions emphasize justice, others emphasize mercy, others emphasize faithfulness, but we need them all together. Justice without mercy, Tyson says, justice with mercy without faithfulness is secularism. And I fear that for many younger people, because they have not seen justice lived out in the church, they are going towards, we find ourselves tempted towards a secular vision of justice, which is basically just power dynamics. And there's some helpful insights there. But man, like power dynamics get you rage with no redemption. They turn the oppressed into oppressors. There's no vision of God. There's no moral vision. There's no humility there. It's just cynicism and rage. And many of you know what that's like. It's bankrupt. But justice with faith plus faithfulness without mercy can give you angry activism. You can be a Christian and really be a jerk in how you do your activism. I know I have. 
And mercy plus faithfulness without justice gives us a sort of quiet pietism. Let's just go over here and pray and fast and do our thing and just kind of let the world burn and God will make it all right in the end. But Jesus says we've got to hold them all together. And the result is often for evangelicals, especially since World War II, we don't have a category for justice. It's like a missing drive, like that little spinny thing when you go try to access the drive on your Mac and it just spins. That's how some of our internal worlds do with justice. Like, ah, I don't know what to do. I'm paralyzed. The consequences of not taking justice seriously, friends, church, brothers and sisters, is that we have generations walking away from Jesus. And again, people have always been walking away from Jesus, but they used to walk away from Jesus because they didn't believe what he taught. Gen Z, my kids' generation, they're walking away from Jesus because they don't think we believe what Jesus taught. That's what's at stake. Like justice is a credibility issue. You care about evangelism, you better care about justice because you're not going to get a hearing if you're not living it out and ask any young person under the age of 25 in this room and they will tell you that's true. We live in a moment with a war that is one of the greatest humanitarian crises in a generation. We live with some of the greatest racial unrest since the 60s, maybe since the 1860s. We are living in a world full of gun violence, abortion, how to care for mothers and the unborn together, an orphan crisis, a poverty gap that is unimaginable right here in our city. We are losing a generation. We have an opportunity to relearn justice, not because some activist on Twitter tells us we should, but because Jesus says it matters to God. We're also losing our black and brown brothers and sisters. A generation ago, Howard Thurman said this. If you've not read Jesus and the Disinherited, please do yourself a favor and just read this book. This is an Orthodox African-American scholar, mystic, prayer warrior, social... I mean, this is who Martin Luther King had this on his person when he was shot. This was his mentor. And in this, his work, he writes... I belong to a generation that finds very little that is meaningful in the teachings of Jesus, talking about his peers. It's a generation in revolt because of the impression that Christianity is an otherworldly religion. Why is it that Christianity seems impotent to deal radically and therefore effectively with issues of discrimination and injustice on the basis of race, religion, and national origin? Is this impotency due to a betrayal of the genius of the religion, or is it due to a basic weakness in the religion itself? He chooses the former, not the latter. He says, this is not, this is not Christianity. The same thing Frederick Douglass said, the same thing that Fannie Lou Hamer said. This is not, this is cultural Christianity. This is not the teachings of Jesus. And it allowed him to find his faith in the midst of so much injustice. That's a legacy that is ours as the church to claim for ourselves. I was sitting in a meeting with pastors, and I'll be done. I was sitting in a meeting of pastors in the city black and white pastors, majority black pastors this week, last week, who were just gathered to talk about justice. And Pastor Clarence Moore, all these pastors have been in our city for 30, 40 years at the same church, living in neighborhoods that uh, many of us don't live in. And Clarence said, Pastor Clarence said, I've never seen this in 40 years of pastoring in India. I've never seen white pastors come to the table willing to talk about justice. He said, if we can't talk about justice, I'm too tired to be at this table. But if we're here to talk about justice, then I am in. 
I want to be a part of seeing God do something in our children's generation and our grandchildren's generation that can only be explained by the power of God. But he said it must start with an honest accounting of justice. And I think that he's right. And so I just want to invite you into this work with me, with our elders, with our staff. We are committed to being a church that is learning what it's like to be a community of justice, not self-righteously, not that we've got it all figured out, not in the way that shames people who are doing the work, but just in a way that's invitational and just says, hey, we want to center the things that matter to the heart of God. And so how do we do that? What does that look like? I just want to encourage you, like, it just means starting small, starting in our own hearts, starting local, starting relationally, and then moving out to all the systematic issues and the global issues, but starting with faithfulness. One of the things that Jesus said matters, faithfulness, where you live with what you have, expressed in a way that's intentional and active for your season of life, for your gender, for your class, for your ethnicity, for your marital status. It's going to look a lot different, different age groups, but just, it's just an invitation to prayerfully discern how God might be calling you to be involved in the work of justice without fear, without guilt, without shame? What is the next right thing for you to do? Does your life reflect the priority? So there's just two little practices this week that I want to give to you as we go to communion. One is the practice of self-reflection or self-examination, right? Like just do your work, do your homework, look into your story. Why, why is it that you've been formed without the category of justice? Does, you, does your life reflect the priorities of Jesus? If so, great, keep doing that. If not, Why? What, what comes up in your heart? What stirs in your heart? Like last night, outside of my house, there's gunshots and there's police running up and down the street. Gun violence, 500 feet from my house. What's stirring up in me when that's happening and why? And what am I going to do about it? I'm called to engage as a peacemaker in my neighborhood. So examination, looking for blind spots. And then secondly, relational proximity. Like Jesus, we get close to the poor, to the marginalized. When we get close, we begin to see as God sees and feel as God feels so that we can do as God does. We develop solidarity and compassion. As our dinner tables change, our community changes, our city changes. But our city will never change unless our dinner tables change, unless our family events change, unless our missional communities change, unless our gatherings change. Let me pray for us. We'll go to communion. I know my way over time. So so important for us to grab onto this. So I just want to invite you to communion. And again, no guilt, no shame, just an invitation. How is God stirring in you to respond to this invitation to justice? This is what Jesus came to do, to do the work of justice, to, to, to take all of the brokenness of the world into his body, to bring wholeness and restoration, and to call us as his disciples in faith to cling to him as we do the work of justice together. And so what is God's invitation to you? Just take a moment to be thinking about that. We're gonna confess our sins. We're gonna come and receive the bread and the cup. We'll have stations here at the front, stations at the back. We have wine and bread and these. You can come down, take a piece of bread, tear it off and dip it into the cup. You'll receive a blessing. You can return to your seat. We'll have gluten-free and grape juice in the back. But let's just take a moment to, to reflect, to bring our hearts before God, to bring our longings before God, to ask God to heal us and empower us for this work. Let me pray for us, and then I'll lead us through a prayer of confession. Then you do business with God, and you come as you feel that. If you're not a follower of Jesus, we'd invite you to stay in your seat and not come and receive communion as others do, okay? Father, thank you so much for this word from Jesus, this word that you, you didn't neglect the work of justice. And because of that, we, we didn't receive 
what we should have received. We received your mercy. We received your grace. We received your justice. And we are now justified to be able to go out into the world and to represent you. So God, would you help us? Jesus, would you empower us? Holy Spirit, would you come and minister to us? Would you nudge us in the direction of where you want us to go? Would you help us to discern how we are to be involved in responding to what you're doing in the world? You're doing this with or without us, but God, you've invited us to participate joyfully, hopefully, redemptively. And so God, help us to respond to that invitation this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.